We're very happy to have with us today uh, Professor Jeffrey Gurak, as a Pam, is that right? And his wife Pam, from, both from uh, Riverdale. Uh, professor Gurak is the Libby M. Clapham Professor of Jewish History at Yeshiva University. He served from 1982 through 2002 as Associate Editor of the American Jewish History, the leading academic journal in the field, uh, and was twice Chair of the Academic Council of the American Jewish Historical Society. He's the author or editor of 18 books. His works include The Holocaust Averted, An Alternate History of American Jury, 1938 to 67, Judaism's Encounter with American Sports, The Colonial and Early National Period, 1654 to 1840, American Jewish History, um, The Wide World of Central Synagogue, I threw that in there because we went to visit, A Modern Heretic in a Traditional Community, Mordechai M. Kaplan, Orthodoxy and American Judaism. In 1998, A Modern Heretic that I just mentioned was awarded the biannual Saul Wiener, Weiner? Wiener uh, Prize from the American Jewish Historical Society for the best book written in that field. Uh, Professor Gurak's Orthodox Jews in America was a finalist for the National Jewish Book Award in the area of American Jewish studies. His study, Jews in Gotham, the New York Jews, sorry, New York Jews in a Changing City, 1920-2010, received the Everett Family Foundation Award for the best nonfiction Jewish book of 2012 from the Jewish Book Council. His most recent book, The Jews of Harlem, The Rise, Decline, and Revival of Jewish Community, the one we have here, um, sorry, that is the most recent book, and you're working on another book you may mention. Professor Gurek has been an athlete all his life. This is for tomorrow in particular. Playing a variety of sports as a kid, he played on the lacrosse team at City College. Anybody from City College here? Yeah. There you go. Why aren't you wearing your uh, City College uh, alma mater shirts? Okay, I don't know if you remember Professor Gurek. He was on the team. <laughs> he served as assistant men's basketball coach at Yeshiva University for over 25 years. Any runners in the room? Raise your hand. Anybody run here? Oh, well, okay. Then you may or may not be impressed. He's run over 275 road races of varying distances, including 12 New York City marathons and two Boston marathons. In total, he has run over 30,000 miles in the last 30 years. So we have an athlete and a scholar with us tonight. Um, before we get started, anybody here have Harlem connections? Like parents, grandparents, raise your hand so we know. See, it's not that many. I told you, not that many. Well, I think you're going to learn stuff about the Jews of Harlem you never knew. You can call all your family tonight on the East Coast. Remember, they're three hours ahead, so they'll be late. They may not appreciate it, but when you tell them every stuff, it's worth waking them up at 1 o'clock in the morning. They'll, they'll do it. So please join me in welcoming President Jeffrey Gurak here to Orange County. Actually, I ran the 3,000 miles to get here. <laughs> and for City College alumni, remember, I paid $37 to go to City College. That was the entire nut. And uh, received a wonderful education, played lacrosse, and met my wife. So it was a really a, a trifecta, so to speak, as far as life is concerned. Well, uh, it's nice to be here with fellow New Yorkers and honorary New Yorkers, those of you who were with us uh, two years ago in, in New York, and to talk about my 40-year platonic relationship love affair with Harlem. Uh, a few years ago when this book came out, The Jews of Harlem, it, it received a very nice review. Can you hear me okay? Okay, great. Uh, a very nice review in uh, the Jewish Re Review of Books, and the title was called Harlem on His Mind, which was a takeoff, by the way, on a very controversial exhibit at the Metropolitan Museum of, of Art back in the 60s that was done by an African-American young person. The exhibit was called Harlem on My Mind, 
but Harlem has been on my mind, Jewish Harlem has been on my mind really since um, the 1970s. Uh, this book is a second iteration, a second version of my work on Harlem. I'll say a little bit about its origins in a moment. One of the reasons I did the second version, and I'll say this arrogantly, is that I look back at my career, the, all the books that I wrote, all of them, and you'll hear some examples tonight, all of them, ironically, if not intentionally, have a connection to the Harlem experience. So I've gained a lot from Harlem, I've lived through Harlem, and uh, I'm back in Harlem as a scholar and also as a visitor. But um, in other words, what happened in Harlem, past, present, even future, has implications not only for that neighborhood, but for the entire history of American Jews, which is why I'm in love with uh, Harlem. But let me go back to the beginning, why I got interested in writing my first book, which was called When Harlem Was Jewish, 1870 to 1930. As you can hear already, I am a born and bred New Yorker. I have this distinctive New York uh, dialect, which, uh, which uh, I've carried with me all over the world. Um, I was a child of the 1960s, growing up in, uh, in New York, and I wrote about it in my Jews of Gotham book. I lived in a segregated neighborhood. It was a neighborhood of Italians, Irish, and Jews, and no African Americans lived in the neighborhood. In fact, we were so oblivious to the fact that there are no blacks there, they never dawned upon me that the only kids we got into fights with were the Irish kids in the neighborhood. Where were the black kids? They were elsewhere. They were in what we called the projects, on the other, literally on the other side of the tracks. And my family was a liberal family, and we were very happy when, when Rabbi Heschel marched with Dr. King, and we were concerned and we mourned the fact of the three civil rights workers who were killed in Philadelphia, Mississippi. And we also lived through a transformation in black-Jewish relationships. And if you are New Yorkers or you know anything about New York history, in 1968, there was a tremendous battle royale over control of the public schools, which pitted Jews against blacks and blacks against Jews. So when I got to Columbia University, studying for my PhD in American Jewish history, I decided initially to write my magnum opus called Jews and Blacks in the Age of Jim Crow from 1896 to 1954. And my advisor at that point, one of my advisors happened to be an Israeli said, you know, if you want to do this book properly, don't focus on pastors and rabbis and politicians. Why don't you pick a neighborhood where Jews and blacks interact with each other, a number of neighborhoods. And he suggested I study four cities, Boston, Detroit, Cleveland, and Milwaukee. Now, had I listened to him explicitly, I would still be working on that book to this very day, 40 <laughs> years later. But I'm in Mor Morningside Heights, and some of you have maps, and Morningside Heights overlooks Harlem. And I looked out the window, and I had this aha moment. Gee, no one has ever studied uh, Harlem. But as I started doing the work, I realized, and this is the bulk of my talk this evening, that there was more to the Harlem ex Jewish experience than their encounters with African Americans. And we will discuss the African American Jewish relationship in a few moments. There was a very interesting Jewish story, internal Jewish story to tell, because at the end of the day, I see myself more, I'm an American Jewish historian, the big capital letter is J, Jewish historian. 
What does it mean to live apart from the Lower East Side, this iconic Jewish neighborhood that dates back so many years? So I came across some very interesting numbers. As of 1890, there were 20,000 Jews living in Harlem. By 1900, there were 100,000 Jews living in Harlem. 1917, there were 175,000 Jews living in Harlem, making it the third largest Jewish community in the entire world. Lower East Side was number one, about 350,000. Lamented, Warsaw was two, and Harlem was three. So when Ari asked, is there anyone with Harlem connections? I've given talks like this literally all over the world for 40 years. There's always somebody in the audience who's a Lonsman, so welcome back to Harlem at this, at this point. The story begins in 1870, when a group of intrepid Jewish merchants moved from the Lower East Side up to Harlem. Now, if you look at your map, you'll see all these different neighborhoods that are north of the Lower East Side. None of them were there in 1870. In other words, New York City was built up only as far north as 42nd Street. And by the way, legally, um, New York City was Manhattan and half of the Bronx. If you've been to New York and you know the Grand Concourse, which wasn't built yet, east of the Grand Concourse belonged to, Man to the city, west of the Grand Concourse belonged to that imperialistic county called Westchester, which extended down south. Brooklyn, Queens, these are separate cities at that point. Anyway, in 1870, a group of intrepid Jewish merchants, pioneers, you know, we often talk about the merchant saga of Jewish merchants, German-American, who go out, out of the city and they, they cast their lot far away from New York. Well, the same thing takes place in Manhattan. If you, if you move to Harlem and you open a store across 125th Street, that main commercial area, which is that way today, and you live up there and you wanted to get downtown to the Lower East Side, the only way you could get there was either by horse-drawn omnibus or by steamship, which took between 45 minutes and an hour from the pier of 125th Street down to Lower East Side. Now, I don't know if you're going to laugh at this, but when I tell New York audiences this, they always, always chuckle. I say, today, during rush hour, <laughs> to get from 125th Street down to the Lower East Side takes more than 45 minutes to an hour. Now, what road were we on Friday afternoon? 405? 405, right? So we visited at UCLA with, with family, and we drove to Long Beach. Took an hour and 47 minutes to go 32 darn miles. So you understand this better than I do. Anyway, the people who lived up there lived a separate life from those who lived on the Lower East Side, as if they were living in the boondocks. Now, in this new book, I did something different than I did in the original book. Through Ancestry.com, and I don't get any residuals from this, I just want to tell you, it's a lot of fun, Ancestry.com, I identified a family, Emma and Israel uh, Stone, through Ancestry.com, who were among the first Jews who lived in Harlem. How did I do it? Well, I had the records of the first synagogue in Harlem called Congregation Yod B. Yod becomes Temple Israel, it called itself the Temple Emmanuel of Harlem. Now, by the way, in New York, there are about eight or nine congregations that call themselves the Temple Emmanuel of X, Y, and Z. Anyway, so I found that name, and I checked the name through Ancestry.com, and lo and behold, I hit 
I was able to follow that family from the Lower East Side to East Harlem to Central Harlem to the Bronx to Queens and then they disappeared and with the help of a genealogist I, re I located a great great granddaughter of this couple who lives in Sherman Oaks, California, <laughs> not too far from here I'm told. So I called her up uh, and by the way if we could find her, this genealogy expert in me, in about 20 minutes, imagine what they have on us in the government that this could be done so easily. <laughs> but be that as it may. So I called her up and I introduced myself. My name is Professor Gurak and I'm not asking for any money. That's how, you, that's how you get your foot in the door. And I told her my story. I said, by any chance, do you know that you're related to Israel and Emma Stone? She says, yes, that's my great-great-grandparents. And I was hopeful she would say, and by the way, I have some children who now live in Harlem. Yeah. It didn't happen, yeah. but the stones appear in the book. So there is an early German period. They're not really Germans, they're Central Europeans who come to Harlem in 1870. In 1879, pardon me, after many years of deliberation, the city fathers in their wisdom, and they're only city fathers because women couldn't vote till 1916 in New York City, build elevated railroads, second and third avenue L's, extending from the Lower East Side up the spine of Manhattan, through Yorkville, through Gramercy, through Yorkville, if you look at your map, up into Harlem, to East Harlem, over the water into the South Bronx. This makes it possible for more German Jews to come in, and I told you by, uh, ninth, by 1890, there are 20,000 German Jews uh, in Harlem. But here come the East Europeans. The East Europeans arrive. They arrive, actually, they're here before the 1880s, but as you know, beginning in the 1880s, two, two million Jews are going to come to America, and about 60% of them uh, end up in uh, New York City. And I gave you the numbers of Jews who, move, who moved up there at that point. Now, who are, the, who are these people who move uptown? Well, there was a classic immigrant novel called The Rise of David Levinsky, which was written by Abraham Kahan. You may know the name. He was the editor of Abintal Brief, Letters to the Editor of the Forward. He was a socialist, and he was someone who uh, had a, his finger on the pulse of uh, immigrant Jews. If, you're, if you come tomorrow, I'll mention some aspects what, what Kahan had to say about sports, about baseball, but not, but not, but not tonight. He writes this, a novel called The Rise of David Levinsky, but a poor and semi-honest yeshiva bacher, semi-honest because Khan's a socialist who makes his money and moves uptown. He moves uptown into central Harlem, north of Central Park, north of 110th Street, and lives in a luxurious building overlooking the park. Cross ventilation, things of that sort. And he says his wife wears jewelry. So the image we had of Harlem was of people made their money downtown and they moved uptown as a reflection of their having made it within the, the United States. But I had a problem with that 40 years ago to this very day. And that is my father grew up in Harlem as well. My father grew up on Park Avenue, 100th Street in Park Avenue, which were in a tenement uh, very much like the Lower East Side. Lower East Side had some streets where there were about a thousand persons per acre. 
So if you live on an acre of land, wherever you live in this area, and a, a thousand people come to visit you and stay, that's what it's like. So Harlem wasn't as overcrowded East Harlem as where my parents lived. Now, my, my uh, grandparents were poor tailors. There were six boys and one girl. Four boys, uh, four boys uh, shared a bed. And my name is Jeffrey S. Gurok. The S was supposed to be for my Uncle Sam. Uncle Sam was a bootlegger. He ran with Waxy Gordon's gang. Now, there was this TV show on a couple of years ago called Boardwalk Empire. I don't know if you ever saw it. At Board, Boardwalk Empire, about Atlantic City, right? And Waxy Gordon's in that. There's a Waxy Gordon character. There's no Sam Gurak in, in that character. Anyway, so I came to the book, and I came to my work with an understanding that there are two types of Jews who are living in Harlem. So it's easy to understand how the rich Jews, the affluent Jews, end up in Harlem. They may, they may have arrived in 1880. By 1905, they've moved from working in a sweatshop to owning the sweatshop. They take the subway, which is built after 1900, 20 minutes quick down to the Lower East Side, and they live in luxury across 5th Avenue, 6th Avenue, 7th Avenue. We'll talk a little bit about that. But what about the poor Jews? How do my grandparents get up to Harlem? Well, history repeats itself. In the 21st century, we often talk in New York, as I'm sure in your neck of the woods, about the negative impact of gentrification. Well, gentrification took place, believe it or not, on the Lower East Side beginning in the 1890s. In other words, with the overcrowding that's taking place, again, the city fathers decide, we're going to make some changes in the ecology of downtown to make it possible for people to live a better life downtown. So they have a number of plans. One of the plans was to build what they called public parks and piers, like swimming pools, for the people. And if you come to New York next time, you go to Lower East Side, you'll see these concrete playgrounds still exist. Essex Street Park, Mulberry Bend Park, uh, Grand Street Park, they're still there. The idea was some fresh air for people during the summertime where there was obviously no air conditioning, no fans. They also built these parks, by the way, for, for controlled play for young people. In other words, kids were playing stickball on the street and they, again, you see how Harlem leads to my other books. A kid gets up on East Broadway, hits a long ball, runs around, uses the push carts as bases, <laughs> rounds third, takes an apple off the streetcar as his home run. That's called petty thievery, okay? So in order to mitigate that, they build these parks. Good idea. If you own the tenement that was condemned through eminent domain, you get compensated by the, peop by the government. What happens to the poor people who lose their home? Big, big question mark. That's one example. Another example. They want to disperse what they call the ghetto. And by the way, there are no Jewish ghettos in America. Even at its heyday, the Lower East Side was only three quarters Jewish. There are Irish, there are Italians, there are others living in the neighborhood. Well, after 1900, they decide to build two new bridges to link Manhattan with Brooklyn. Foreigners who don't know New York, I hope you're still with me on these types of things, okay? <laughs> the Williamsburg Bridge, which links the Lower East Side with Williamsburg over the water into Brooklyn, is built. 
Next time you go to Ratner's restaurant on Delancey Street, you can't go there anymore. It's, been, it's, it's, it's not there anymore, okay? But next, I used to tell my students, next time you go to that restaurant or you go to New York, take a look at that bridge. It comes out at you and 12,000 people lost their homes. What happens to them? Big question mark. Th third example. You know about the tragic um, triangle, triangle Fire. Well, that was part of a movement on the part of entrepreneurs to build large factories as opposed to small entrepreneurial activities in people's homes. So every time you build a factory, it, it takes away from the uh, ecology downtown. So in fact, there are people who are forced out of their homes and where do they go? Well, there was a homeless problem downtown. People double and triple up. And by the time my mishpacha comes in 1905, there literally is no room for them downtown. They live in a working class neighborhood uptown, living a very different existence from their brethren, also East Europeans. The Levinsky's are on Fifth Avenue, the Gorak's are on Park Avenue. It's only a five minute walk, but it says a mouthful about what life what life is, life is like. So, in the East Harlem area, you have signs of an unacculturated community. If you went to Lower East Side on Rosh Hashanah, you could go to one of over 350 small synagogues, Stiebel's Landsmannschaften. A Landsmannschaften is a synagogue, a society of people from the same hometown who want to pray together. Harlem didn't have 350 synagogues. It had 150 synagogues, congregations of that sort, a sign of that sort of old line activity that shouldn't be uptown, according to the theory, but yet exists, uh, exists uh, uptown as well. If you weren't religious uh, and you weren't a synagogue member, you could belong to the Ring, the workman's circle. Similarly, Ring branch number one is downtown, Number two is uptown. So the East Harlem community is living a very, a downtown-like existence, even though they're located due north in the Harlem uh, area. On the other hand, the other community, that acculturated community, is showing signs of trying to create new forms of Judaism. So there are a number of landmark synagogues in Harlem, which are now churches, there's one, it's still around today, it's a church on 116th Street between 5th and 6th Avenue. And I'm so lucky when I do my tours, that entire block has been gentrified. All new buildings, except for that one synagogue, which started in the Lower East Side, it was called Congregation Ohet Tzedek, and it moves uptown with its rich people in the early, in the early 20th century. It was remarkable for a number of reasons. First of all, you mentioned Kutsovitsky. Before there was a Kutsovitsky, right? There was Yasula Rosenblatt. Yasula Rosenblatt was the, the great cantor of his era. He had a sweetheart contract. He only had to be in shul once every four weeks. Many of us follow that tradition even though we don't get paid. <laughs> the rest of the time he's on the road doing cantorial concert, things of that sort. He was so popular that not only did they sell tickets for Yomim Noraim, the High Holy Days, but they sold tickets every month for his, for his uh, performances. 
And it was said that the women in the balcony swooned and the men were there just to take in his voice. Now before he became their cantor, there was a, there was a cantor Matlin and it was a scandal. He also had a great voice. And the congregation also was selling tickets. The idea is he's a rainmaker. He's going to bring in people who are going to hear him pray. So they're selling tickets year-round, and there was a scalping scandal. It's in the book. There are reports that you could buy your, you could buy your tickets on Shabbat across the street in a tobacco store. <laughs> And then come, it's in, I think it's page 125. It's in the the book. And the congregation of Obsetic said, the reason we sell these tickets, they deny this was going on uh, uh, in the neighborhood. In fact, the organization that protested was called the Jewish Defense League of Harlem, (laughs) having nothing to do with Mayor Kahana, who wasn't born yet, 60 years later. They said, the reason we had these tickets was for the overflow crowd and we need crowd control, particularly for the young dandies who come to shul to ogle the women in the balcony. <laughs> some things change and some things remain uh, the same. Now, the congregation also has two rabbis. They have a great Talmud Chacham. He's Rabbi Dr. Philip Hillel Klein, who was a terrible speaker. He would speak in this high German-Hungarian dialect, and in the autobiography of Ira Eisenstein, who was Mordechai Kaplan's son-in-law and the second head of the Reconstructionist movement, he said, when he was growing up, as soon as Rabbi Klein got up to preach, there was a mass exodus of boys (laughs) and men from the synagogue, and the kids played box ball in the street until 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 his sermon was over. So they don't fire Klein, they hire a second uh, rabbi. His name is Bernard Drachman, and I've written about Drachman, who was the first modern Orthodox rabbi of the 20th century. He grew up in a Reformed family, became Orthodox. He uh, taught at the Jewish Theological Seminary, which at that point was Orthodox. And he, in his own opinion, he was a great speaker. So now you have a contradiction of sources between Drachman's autobiography called The Unfailing Light, where he says, the Jews came to synagogue to hear me preach. And in Rosenblatt's biography, written by his son, Rabbi Samuel Rosenblatt, he said, they came to hear me pray. So the truth probably lies between the two of them. What am I telling you? These are funny stories. What am I telling you? They've moved from the Lower East Side. They've moved from a steeple. They want to show that they've made it by having a fancy cantor and two rabbis, and they hope that this type of American behavior will bring in the young people who are going to the public schools and becoming Americanized. So that type of activity begins in Harlem. Literally across the street, diagonally across the street, on the north side of the street, in 1917, an institution is established, a synagogue is established, which has residents throughout the United States. There was a young rabbi, his name was Herbert S. Goldstein. His father was Harry Fischel, who was a Jew who made money in the real estate business and moved uptown and remained orthodox. We'll talk about Fischel in a few moments, a little bit more about him. 
that they, they have the idea of establishing what becomes known as the synagogue center movement. Now, this isn't the JCC or the YMHA. The JCC, and I, I bet there's a JCC in this neck of the woods. It's all over the country. So JCC is a place where Jewish youngsters come to play and recreate, etc. But the criticism of the JCC movement or the Y movement, which goes back over 100 years, that its Jewish content was not nearly as strong as it should be, although thankfully things have changed over the years. Goldstein's idea was, which he learned from his Rebbe, Mordechai Kaplan, footnote to my Kaplan book, right, is that you create a synagogue where people come to play and they stay to pray. And play can mean swimming, a pool with a shul, I didn't make that up. Uh, a gymnasium, an art room, a music room, a library, God forbid, a dance hall, etc. And that you come and you spend all your time at, in these activities and you stay for services Friday night and you get more involved in Judaism. Now, this type of movement, it starts in Harlem. I'm so proud of Harlem. It starts in Harlem, 1917, Institutional Synagogue. A year later, it moves to the Jewish Center in Manhattan the Jewish Center Synagogue, and from there, it goes all over the countries. Now, when I did my sports book, I was fortunate enough to interview some elderly men who had played for the Brooklyn Jewish Center in the 1940s, and I asked them, did you ever stay to pray? And they said, you know, we had a terrific basketball team. Not only that, after the games, they had dances, Good place to meet young Jewish women. So what, what was my Jewishness? They said, when we played against the CYO, the Catholic Youth Organization, the YMCA, and we beat them, we were doing something special for Judaism. That was their definition of come to play and stay to pray. So the jury is out whether this modality of behavior uh, really works. But again, this attempt to deal with Jewish identification is something that begins during this, during this time period. Now, one last thing about Jewishness in Harlem. One of the semi-myths that we have, that I was talking to Ari about before I began my talk, is that Germans and East European Jews don't get along. Well, I have a different take on that. You see, I believe it's not so much the ethnicity of where you came from, but how long you were in America. And when I first proposed to write my book, my first book on Harlem, I, my proposal said, I want to see how the Germans react to the East Europeans moving uptown. It's bad enough they're downtown. Now here goes the neighborhood, the East, the German, East Europeans are moving uptown. Well, the fact is that East European Jews who are acculturated and who have money and they're English-speaking, they and the Germans get along very well, and they are both resented by their fellow East European Jews who feel it's almost like Animal Farm. They look and talk just like the Germans. And the best example I can give you, which is in the book, is an institution called the Uptown Talmud Torah. Uptown Talmud Torah was on 113th Lexington Avenue. Among the leaders of the Uptown Talmud Torah were Jacob Schiff, Jacob Schiff was this major German-Jewish banker, Louis Marshall. Next time you go to New York, if you go to Emmanuel, their names are on, are on the wall. And their colleague in trying to make a modern Tama Torah was Harry Fischel, 
Herbert Goldstein's father-in-law, who referred to himself as, I'm the East European Jacob Schiff. I'm Orthodox, he's Reform. What do we have in common? We have in common, we both want to see our, the East European Jews become like us. So there was an incident that I found out about from looking at the Lewis Marshall papers, and um, sort of interesting. Uh, Fischl has an idea. We're going to teach Jewish stories, Bible stories to kids using audiovisual activities. Some of us may remember Viewmasters in our youth. Well, it was called the Stereopticon machine. So Fischl goes and buys a Stereopticon machine. He goes to a Christian publishing house and he asks for their whole set of Old Testament slides. He gets the machine, gets the slides, gives it to the teacher and says, use them to teach Bible stories. So you see the Akedah, you see the Exodus from Egypt, you see the Jews marching through the desert, the cloud at night, the pillar by day, or vice versa, whatever it is, okay? One night, a group of parents, or one parent, comes into the uptown Talmud Torah, finds the machine, and finds the slides, and burns them. Because in his opinion, they're violating the, the commandment of not making images of God. When this happens, the Morgan Journal, that's the Orthodox newspaper, by the way, to do this work, you have to be able to read different Yiddish newspapers, and each one, you know, it's the Forbes, which is socialist, the Freiheit, which is communist, the Tug, which is Zionist, the Morgan Journal is Orthodox. You know, in my gym, where I work out, there are three TV sets. There's one on MSNBC, one on CNN, and one on Fox, right? And I, that half hour on the bike, there are three different versions of, of, of history, right? Same thing here. The mortgager now goes to town against, not the vandals, but Harry Fischel, and says, you've forgotten who you are. You were once East European like us. You may be ritually observant, you become like the Germans. So here you have different groups of East European Jews not getting uh, along very well. One last story. Um, in 19, about diversity of opinion. In 1916, there's an interesting congressional election, so you have to study politics as well, um, which pits three Jewish candidates running against each other, each representing a different vision of what it means to be a Jew. Batting first is Morris Hilquit. He's a socialist. Two years earlier, 1914, the socialists had finally elected a congressman named Meyer London. Now they're moving the fight uptown. The Forbits, the forward, not only publicized, they run the election. He says, vote for me. I will help working class Jews. Batting second is, is Bernard Rosenblatt, not related to Yesler Rosenblatt who is the executive secretary of the Federation of American Zionists. Vote for me. I'm a Zionist. The third is Isaac Ike Siegel. You remember the story about that group that was protesting at Ohab Tzedek about the corruption? Well, this is Isaac Siegel, who a year later will become the president of the Institutional Synagogue. He is an orth Americanized Orthodox Jew, graduate of Columbia University, as was Bernard Rosenblatt, he says, vote for me. I'm a proud American Orthodox Jew, and I'll represent, your I'll represent you well in Congress. And he had a, a campaign slogan, which I've mentioned many, many times, and no one's really figured it out for me, but I'll share it with you. He said, if I'm elected, 
I would be proud to speak a fluent Yiddish and a fluent English in the halls of the United States Congress, which only begs the question, with whom would he have spoken Yiddish? <laughs> well, there's an answer. It would have been Mario London, but they didn't get along. Very close election. Isaac Siegel wins. He wins because he's got a friend who's an Italian-American. And by the way, Harlem was not totally Jewish. It had an Italian area as well, and still to this day, there's an Italian section north. His name is LaGuardia. LaGuardia is the district leader. And Siegel wins. He serves three terms in Congress, then he becomes a, a judge, and then he wills that, he wills that um, seat to LaGuardia. So LaGuardia runs in 1922, and he runs against Henry Frank, a German Jew. And Henry Frank thought it would be advantageous to accuse LaGuardia of being an anti-Semite. Now, LaGuardia's mother was Jewish, and she raised him as a Christian, but what Frank didn't know, or should have known, is that LaGuardia was a fluent Yiddish speaker. So LaGuardia said, you know, I will debate you about my alleged anti-Semitism in a debate that will be conducted entirely in Yiddish. And that solved the problem. LaGuardia was, was elected to the uh, Congress. I'm running short on time. I do want to talk about blacks and Jews. You see, I got away from so much of the black Jewish story in doing the Jewish story. But now I'm back. 85, not 85 years later, studying 85 additional years. And I want to say a couple of things about the black Jewish relationship in Harlem and then a little bit about where things are today. First of all, my take on black Jewish relations is that there's no one Jewish story and there's no one African-American story. The first episode is in the period before World War I where blacks who are literally chased out through rioting in Hell's Kitchen, which is today where Lincoln Center is, uh, if you know uh, the movie West Side Story, it was filmed on location before they turned down, they uh, tore down those buildings. They move up to the northern reaches of central Harlem, north of where the Jews live. Well, it turns out that until World War I, the, almost the entire white population in the black neighborhood is Jewish. The Irish don't want to live with them. The Italians don't want to live with them. Jews live with them. Again, one of the things that I studied was census materials, looking at who lives where. So Jews don't show a particular disinclination to living among African Americans until World War I. Having said that, when the first blacks want to move uptown, there's an organization called the West Side Improvement Association. Anytime you hear an improvement association, it's a restrictive association, which includes Jews who want to keep blacks out. Two very, very different stories. After World War I, for a variety of reasons, Jews move out of Harlem, as they do from the Lower East Side, and they move all over the far boroughs. Look at the story of the Stone family. They move to the Grand Concourse, then to Queens, and they move to a variety of new neighborhoods in Brooklyn, in the Bronx, in Queens, uh, Jamaica, Bayside, Long Island City. The only place where Jews don't move to in Queens is uh, Forest Hills, where the old tennis stadium is. 
Uh, and that's because it was off limits to Jews due to social anti-Semitism. <coughs> of course, today, Forest Hills is off limits to Gentiles. <laughs> By the way, that's not true anymore. Things have changed. It's really a multicultural, a lot of Israelis, a lot of Bangladeshis, a lot of Indians. It's, a lot of people have moved. Harlem becomes the black Mecca. Jewish life in Harlem is by day Jewish storekeepers, by night whites and whites and Jewish whites and Christian whites, they go to these restaurants, these cafes, these theaters, and you know that in many places in Harlem, if you went to the Cotton Club, the only blacks you would see in the Cotton Club were the waiters, the busboys, and people of that sort, and the entertainers. So what I tell my audiences in New York, and I guess I'm telling this on the West Coast as well, that New York was a very segregated, very segregated city. On the other hand, the, the famous Apollo Theater was a place where black artists and black musicians could show their wares, owned by Jew, two Jewish owners. Frank Schiffman was one of them, who was an avowed integrationist. So if you read the book, you'll see there's a mixed story of Jews working with blacks, working against blacks. Our alumni from City College came down into Harlem in the 1930s to teach in those public schools at that point, got involved in a variety of activities. And again, um, this is part of that, that history. On the other hand, blacks, there, there were forerunners of Louis Farrakhan. There's Sarif Abdul Hamid, who sees Adolf Hitler as one of his idols. So you have that sort of complexity uh, taking place. In recent years, Harlem has become gentrified. Today, there are more whites than blacks in Harlem. It's a gentrified middle-class neighborhood. The last chapter of the new book called The Beginnings of Return. And one of the questions in Harlem today is, what will become of the poor people who are displaced? The onus is not placed on Jews, interestingly enough. It's placed upon real estate operators of a variety of backgrounds who are, displace, who are displacing uh, African Americans. And I'll close with, a, with a, one last personal story since my wife is here. A few years ago, we went out for drinks to the Red Rooster, one of the great one of the great restaurants in Harlem. We were with an Italian-American friend of mine, one of my college buddies, the Muscatellos, and we're, waiting, we're, we're drinking. We're the oldest people there, by the way. Okay? A lot of the blacks who live there are people who did not grow up in Harlem, but moved to Harlem. So we're about to leave, and a, a panhandler comes over and asks my wife for money. Being much nicer than me, she's about to give money to the panhandler. Along comes this very large African-American bouncer who starts pushing this guy away. Then the waiter who is also African-American comes over and apologizes to us for the fact that we're being uh, panhandled. My friend Louis Muscatello says, hey, we're New Yorkers. We're used to this all the time. I've thought a lot about this, okay? We're very proud of the fact that Jews and blacks who live in Harlem today are getting along. But we also have some social consciousness in terms of what becomes of people who are displaced by uh, the gentrification of our city, of our country, during this time period. And one last thought. Jews have returned to Harlem. Uh, Judaism 
is slowly returning to Harlem. Many of the Jews who moved there, like they've moved to other places, other gentrified neighborhoods in the city, are very happy living among their Gentile neighbors, very much accepted, but their interest in being Jewish is minimal. And you know, notwithstanding some of the difficult times we're living through this year, and I'm not discussing politics where there's a resurgence of anti-Semitism, the big problem for us as Jews, and again, at the end of the day, I'm a Jewish historian, is the fact of how we're gonna survive as a people in terms of identity. So if Harlem is a model, it'll be interesting to see how Jews will be accepted. They're living a good life, by the way. You can't afford to live there anymore. Some of these brownstones that date back, date back to the 1880s go for two, three million dollars. Uh, be that as it may, question is the survival of Judaism in Harlem and elsewhere in the city and in this country. So I've done two books on Harlem. I'm gonna to continue to watch what Harlem, uh, uh, as it develops. Uh, it's been a, a great ride, and I hope you enjoyed being with me on this ride, at least for this hour. Thank you. So the floor is open for questions, but my friend is gonna use a mic so your voices can be recorded, and I can respond. Uh, let's move left to right. Yes. I was fortunate enough I was fortunate enough. A couple of weeks ago, I was able to go to New York and see Bette Midler in Hello, Dolly. And I was wondering about Yonkers, because that's even higher up, isn't it? And yes. was there a movement of Jews up into that area at some point uh, outside of Harlem? And if so, what was the impetus for that? And who were the Jews who ended up going even further north? Right. So after. After World War, the, you heard the question, okay. After World War I, there's white soldiers come back from the war for democracy, and they find African Americans living in their neighborhoods all over the country, and there are race riots, East St. Louis, Illinois, Chicago, Illinois, Newark, New Jersey, Portland, Oregon, where there are very few blacks, okay. To mitigate that, to stop that from happening in New York, the city fathers and almost city mothers uh, pass an interesting real estate law which says if you build a multiple dwelling in an, in an underpopulated area, you'll be free from 10 years of real estate taxes. Under this mandate, all these new neighborhoods that I started to mention come into existence up in the Bronx, Queens, etc. Over in Yonkers, it is, it, you, you have to be at that point a little bit more affluent than the average person because one of the things that I study and I'm so interested in is rapid transit. What was that, 405 rapid transit, right? Hour and 45 minutes, getting to subways, etc. So to get to the subway into the city, it's a two-fare zone. So the Jews who moved to Yonkers, there's an obsetic of Yonkers, by the way. These are people who came from that Harlem area. They tend to be East European, there for a while, Germans living together, and they're living, Yonkers is the beginning of suburbia. It's outside the city limits, although the era for suburbia is gonna begin really after World War II. You see, what happens in this city, in this country, is that people move, move, move to 1929, then they stop, something gets in the way called the Great Depression, then there's another item called World War II, and then there's GI Bill, and away we go, 
and you know that's part of all your lives, including my, my own. So that's a long-winded answer to your, to your question. The gentleman over there, moving left to right. Hi. You didn't mention anything about Sephardim. Mm -hmm. They came to New York in 1654. Mm -hmm. So they had, how come there's no mention whatsoever of the Sephardim? Okay, so there, two things. First, first of all, there are two eras of Sephardic migration. There's that early 17th century Sephardic migration that you're talking about. They, they by the 20th century, they are an elite group like those German Jews doing quite well. There are some Sephardim, early Sephardim in Harlem. For example, Temple, I didn't mention this because I didn't do the whole book tonight, Temple, one of Temple Israel's leaders was Benjamin Pichado, who was a Sephardic Jew, who was um, President Grant's uh, envoy to Bucharest to protest anti-Semitism in, in 1870. So you do have some elite Sephardic Jews living in the western section of Harlem in the 1870s, 1880s, and beyond. Secondly, there's a second, uh, second Sephardic migration, and these are people who come in 1908 after the Young Turk Revolt in the Ottoman Empire, and they come to New York, and they settle in on the Lower East Side, and they have their own enclave within Harlem as well. So here's the analogy. You have the German Jews and the East European Jews having this type of tension and ultimately uh, coming together. And you have the old Sephardim and these new Sephardim who have this relationship uh, as well. So on 113th Street and 3rd Avenue, there was congregation Moses Montefiore which was a Sephardic congregation. So yes, Sephardim are in Harlem. They're in the book. And one last thing. Sephardic businesses in El Barrio, which becomes Puerto Rican in the 1930s, remained there for a long time because they were able to speak the language of these new immigrants, namely Spanish immigrants. So yes, Sephardim are part of the story, but they didn't make the cut in this 45-minute presentation, but they, but, they, but they are in the book. But thank you for asking. They are, they are. I, I, I'll tell you something else. When I did the first book, when I did the first book, I left out Sephardim, okay? And uh, I was criticized by some Sephardic scholars who do good work. How come we don't write about them? So I was very careful to bring them into the story. But thank you for asking that. That was very helpful. Ma'am, you had your hand raised. Yeah, I have a, just a comment. Yes. Yeah my personal connection to Harlem. I'm Hazel. My name is Hazel. I was named after a black jazz pianist, Hazel Scott. Mm -hmm. My parents must have gone clubbing up in Harlem, and I went to City College. Right. And it's just interesting. I was born in 1942. So one of the things I had to study for this new book was the relationship between um, Fanny Bryce, Al Jolson, uh, the Gershwins, and their relationship with black artists and black performers. And again, I didn't go into this in much detail, but I want you to know that one of the things that goes on here is that if you were a black songwriter or playwright, you couldn't get your stuff published. So Jews stepped up and helped them. That's one version of the story. Again, there's no one Jewish story or one black story. The other version of the story is, yes, 
Jews were very helpful with some of these people. It said, I forget their names, that some black musicians taught the Gershwin syncopation, so they had this relationship. But it was an unequal relationship. In other words, yes, Jews helped them get started to some extent, but Jews did better than African Americans even during this uh, during this time period. Thank you. Well, Hazelstein ended up going to France. Right, right. And she married a, a congressman, Adam Clayton Powell Jr. Right, right. Uh, speaking of Adam Clayton Powell, right. Um, there are other questions. Uh, one, two, three. Yes, ma'am. What area, what street numbers are you referring to when you mention Harlem? Okay. It's a terrific mythological question because this map does not, these are not legal, legally defined neighborhoods, right? So here's how I define Harlem and how I did it, at least Jewish Harlem. In 1917, an organization called the New York Key Law published a 1,500-page book, a compendium called the Jewish Communal Register, in which they listed all the Jewish organizations in New York, hundreds, hundreds, if not thousands of organizations. So back in the day, pre-computers, of course, I made a big map, and I put a pin in any, the place of any place that called itself, like my Zeta Davin in the homely old men's shul of Harlem. So I put a pin there. So East Harlem, the poor neighborhood, is basically 96th Street going north on the east side of Manhattan, as far north as the Willis Avenue Bridge, which wasn't there yet, uh, to the Harlem River and the East River. Now, I asked a number of people who I met here uh, where their ancestors lived. If you know where your ancestors live, I can tell you with some degree of accuracy how well they're doing. If you're living on 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and you're doing poorly, the, f the further you go west, you are doing better. Next, yes? Uh, City College is not in Harlem. Right. It's in Harlem Heights. It, well, it's 130, 133rd to 140th Street. So you go west, you have Morningside Heights, St. Nicholas Heights, and Washington. Harlem is in the basin, in the basin. When I went to city, when I went to Columbia as a graduate student, I got to tell you, it, uh, no one in his right mind went into Morningside Park or St. Nicholas Park. Today, it's a lovely, lovely place. And Chabad has had Lagba Omer outings. They have a sukkah there. It's changed a great deal. So City College is in Harlem Heights or St. Nicholas Heights. It's not in Harlem. There's also a synagogue that's been around, and I get in a fight with them all the time. It's a friendly fight. Uh, there's the old Broadway synagogue on 126th Street, east of Broadway. It's too far west. So they call themselves the oldest synagogue in Harlem, but they're not. Okay. Yes, sir. The gentleman had his hand raised. Uh, and then you're next. You're next. Uh, I'm a little vague on history, but I think the Lower East Side predates Harlem, has been continuously occupied Jewishly through to today, and perhaps Williamsburg as well. Harlem seems to have become non-Jewish in the late 30s and reappeared later. Is, right. What, what's the difference? What's, what's the key difference between the Harlem experience and the Lower East Side experience? Okay, first of all, the Lower East Side... The Lower East Side begins as a German, Jewish and German Christian neighborhood in the 
1840s, 1850s. It's known as Klein Deutschland, little, little Germany. I went through this pretty quickly. When those elevated railroads are built, and by the way, and west of the Lower East Side, which becomes Little Italy, is Irish. And it all goes north to 14th Street, up to 42nd Street, then you have your farmland. Central Park is what's left of the farmland, okay? So in the 1880s, we're very fortunate. Germans move out of the Lower East Side, the Irish move out of the Lower West Side, making it possible for Italians and Jews from Eastern Europe to move in. So the Lower East Side has that longer history than Harlem. You mentioned Williamsburg. Williamsburg doesn't come into existence as a Jewish neighborhood, as an urban neighborhood, until the Williamsburg Bridge is built. It's post-World War I. It becomes, it becomes this uh, Orthodox neighborhood, later on ultra-Orthodox neighborhood. So the Lower East Side loses much of its population when Harlem loses its population. What's the difference? It retains its Jewish character, its Jewish stores, its Jewish theaters, its Jewish businesses. Uh, part of the garment center is still there. So it, it declines in terms of numbers, but it also retains a Jewish character. And one last thing. In the 1920s, cooperatives are built downtown cooperative apartments, built by the forward, the labor unions. The forward, by the way, this socialist newspaper, was a gold mine. They sold thousands and thousands of copies. They build these, these co-ops, which, which retain immigrants and their children over the long haul that you don't, that you don't have, you don't have in, in Harlem. In my Jews of Gotham book, I profiled a family, happens to be the parents of a classmate of mine I grew up with, uh, Sal and Sarah Novogratsky. She lived 99 years, he lived 100 years. They lived in the Lower East Side, they never left. They never, and in the 1920s, they had a big decision to make. Should they send their son to a newly established yeshiva of Flatbush in Brooklyn? You imagine that going back in time. So, Yes, Lower East Side is the iconic Jewish neighborhood. If you see the blurb on this book, David Dunlap, the architecture editor of the New York Times, said that Harlem was like a Jewish Atlantis. It was there, it was submerged, and now, and now it's back. Great question. Thank you. One more question. So, last question. Uh, this gentleman has hand raised. Yeah, yeah, yeah. go ahead. Ari standing up is the last question. So we talked about the Jews. So the blacks... Uh, leaving Harlem, did they go to the South Bronx? Is that where the South Bronx population came well, black? First, first of all, I left out the fact that after World War I, the elite of blacks of Harlem who can't move out of Harlem because of racism and discrimination. You mentioned Adam Clayton Powell. Adam Clayton Powell. There was an area on 138th Street, 139th Street, still around today, called Strivers Row. And that's where the elite of Harlem lived at that, that point. The neighborhood then becomes, as it declines due to a variety of reasons, it becomes a neighborhood of poor blacks who move out from the south after, after World War I. And the other major black enclave until the 1960s would be in Brooklyn. It would become known as Bedford-Stuyvesant. 
So that what I wanted to emphasize in the book is the differing fates of Jews and blacks. You know, we made this joke about Forest Hills is off limits to Jews, right? There's so many areas that were off limits to African Americans. And my City College colleague may remember that north of City College, just a few steps, was Hamilton Terrace. And that's where David Dinkins lives today. It was a black enclave for the elite of African Americans who couldn't live anyplace else. There's so much more to tell you about Harlem, but this is just a few snippets. I hope you enjoyed it. Thanks a lot. Mm -hmm.